0: more info now.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work.
3: Dietary fructose is completely irrelevant to life. People say, oh, you need sugar to live. Garbage. I would legalize drugs across the board. We couldn't possibly do worse
2: than we're doing now. My guests today didn't set out to become outspoken critics of powerful institutions. As experts in their fields, they found themselves confronting two issues that have an impact on our everyday lives and our futures. Obesity and the criminal justice system. And they haven't been afraid to speak their minds. You'd have the government dispensing cocaine and heroin? I would sell it in the liquor stores. Martin Horn was head of both the New York City Department of Corrections and Probation. New York City processes nearly 100,000 inmates every year, more than many state systems. But first, before we talk about prisons, we consider another problem that has been getting worse over the last decade. One of every three American adults is obese. The epidemic is arguably the most important health issue of our time. Children today may have a shorter life expectancy than their parents, in large part due to obesity, which has been linked to diabetes, heart disease, and even cancer. My guest today, Dr. Robert Lustig, makes a strong case that our addiction to sugar is at the root of the obesity epidemic. Americans consume an average of 130 pounds of sugar a year. Two years ago, this issue became a personal one when my doctor told me I was pre-diabetic. So when I read about Dr. Lustig in his popular anti-sugar lecture streaming online,
3: I paid attention. So why do I call it the Coca-Cola conspiracy? And next, I gave up sugar. What else is in Coke? We'll get to the sugar in a minute. What else? Salt. 55 milligrams of sodium per can. It's like drinking a pizza. So what happens if you take on sodium and lose free water? You get thirstier, right? So why is there so much sugar in Coke? To hide the salt. Dr.
2: Lustig is a pediatric endocrinologist at UC San Francisco. Back in the 90s, he became interested in diet and obesity while working at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. Now, a bit of biochemistry to explain some of Lustig's research. Leptin is a protein that works like a thermostat for your body's energy levels. If leptin levels are low, your brain senses starvation and you feel hungry. If levels are high, you feel full. Lustig asserts there is an epidemic of people who have developed leptin resistance, people whose brains can't register when they are full. Lustig has studied leptin and its effect on pediatric patients. In the 1990s, he was
3: treating children recovering from brain tumor surgery. I had a stable of kids who were enormously obese. And the thing was, they weren't obese before the tumor, but they started gaining weight at 30 to 40 pounds a year after the tumor. Per year? Per year, with no cessation, nonstop. And they were constantly hungry, and worse yet, they were the world's biggest couch potatoes. They lost interest in every single thing around them. They would sit on the couch, eat Doritos, and sleep. This was their life. And the parents would come to me and say, this is double jeopardy. My child has survived the tumor only to succumb to a complication of the treatment. Why did they become couch potatoes?
2: What was the link there?
3: Because when your brain sees leptin, you want to burn energy. You want to exercise. You want to be physically active. You want to concentrate. You want to go do things. So leptin signals the body to exercise. Leptin signals the body that you have enough energy on board to exercise. Right. When your brain can't see it, your brain thinks you're starving. My job was to figure out a way to take care of these kids. Right. So my research in obesity started back in 1995. We said, okay. These kids' brains, that area of the brain is dead. I can't bring it back. I'm not a neurosurgeon. I can't transplant the hypothalamus. What can I do? So after doing some research, realized we could work downstream of the brain. The brain was signaling the pancreas to make extra insulin. Insulin makes you store energy. So these kids are known to have enormously high insulin levels. So I said, all right, let's give these kids a medicine that will block the release of insulin. We did a study and lo and behold, patients started losing weight. But more importantly, they started exercising. One kid started competitive swimming. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. Right. I mean, you know, parents were calling me up within a week saying, I've got my kid back. Right. We were interfering with insulin release, and these kids changed their behavior. And that was the first key to what I think is the entire enchilada in terms of the obesity epidemic. And then what happened for you? What did you do next? So then we said, maybe there are adults out there who have the same problem, they just don't have a brain tumor. Let's look for it. So we did a whole study, pilot study with 44 obese adults and we gave them the same drug to do the same thing. And lo and behold, eight out of the 44, not all of them by any means, but eight out of the 44 lost a lot of weight. A pound a week over 24 weeks without doing anything. And what was even more amazing was their fat intake didn't change. Their protein intake didn't change. Their carbohydrate intake dropped on a dime. Mm-hmm. They went from 900 calories a day to 350 calories a day in carbohydrate. They stopped snacking between meals. Mm-hmm. And most important... Crackers. They, right. Bugles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <I> can't <laughs> believe you yeah. said bugles. Yes. You
2: bet. Pringles.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And these kids needed to get their insulin down and the medicine did it. And these adults needed to get their insulin down and the medicine did it for them too. And most importantly, when we got their insulin down, guess what? They started exercising. So this... All of a sudden, became very clear what's going on. For these kids with the brain tumors, they couldn't see their leptin. Their insulins were sky high because their brain was starving. And because their brain was starving, they would eat everything under the sun, and it still wouldn't be enough because they could never see their leptin. And what we realized was this is adult obesity, too. They can't see their leptin well, either. Why?
2: Ah, they don't have brain
3: tumors. That's where sugar came in.
2: So sugar was a culprit that also triggered other... It enabled other bad eating.
3: Exactly. And we've learned that the higher your insulin goes, the hungrier you get. The hungrier you are. So, so right. sugar is an appetite stimulant. In a sense, Accelerant,
2: yes. whatever you want to call it.
3: You can call it that. Right. Absolutely. We know that because David Ludwig, my opposite number at Boston Children's, he prepped a bunch of kids with a soda, a can of soda, 150 calories, and then he let them loose at the fast food restaurant. So the question is, did they eat more or did they eat less? What do you think? They ate more. They ate more. Right. Their insulin was high, and also there's a- High insulin makes you hungry. That's right. High insulin makes you hungry, and also there's a hormone in your stomach that signals hunger called ghrelin, and when ghrelin's high, you're hungry, and sugar doesn't knock it down. When I gave up sugar,
2: it was amazing. It was like pushing a toboggan along a track to eventually get down the slope. The first couple of weeks, the first couple months- uh, that part in early May through June, by the time we get to July and August, we're going downhill and the weight's just coming off me. I cut out carbs and I gave up pasta because that was the mega dose of carbohydrate. Right. I mean, I would eat you know the fish tank sized bowl of pasta.
3: And it's easy to do. A lot of people think that the Italian diet is the Mediterranean diet. No. Not at all. No. There is no pasta in the Mediterranean diet. We started the pasta craze because of all the immigrant Italians who couldn't afford to eat meat and vegetables here. That's what they fell back on. And it actually got exported from here back to Italy, same as chop suey did to China. You know, these are all American inventions. The Italian diet is not the Mediterranean diet. Never was, never will be. But I would say to people, I cut back on bread. They'd say, okay, great. Then I'd say to them, I gave
2: up pasta. They'd say, whoa. Then I'd say, I gave up sugar. And they go, they're insane. Exactly. It was as if I said to them, let's go learn to play the classical piano now. Let's begin now. How did sugar become that we're consuming
3: 130 pounds of sugar per person per year? Was it always that way? No, no. This is very new. What do you think changed that? Money and marketing and, you know, the food industry. So there are a couple of sort of milestones in this story. The first is... The nascent candy and soft drink and sugar industry in America, which dates back to the early 1900s. But that didn't really get things started because sugar was still kind of expensive. And sugar had been expensive all throughout history. In 1959, we lost our sugar fix. Because Castro took over Cuba, Mm -hmm. and that actually started the Florida sugar industry. Because the sugar had come from Cuba prior to that. That's right. A lot of it. A lot of it. So that started the American sugar industry, really in top-notch gear. Then uh, high fructose corn syrup came along.
2: High fructose corn syrup shows up, and all of a sudden, it's in everything. Why? Well, it actually took a while.
3: It is sweeter, but most important, it's cheaper.
2: But do you find that also this is what's happening over the last, I don't know how many years i mean, I'm not somebody who knows the history of this, but certainly in my lifetime, which is the goal is to make everything sweeter.
3: Right. The point is that this is actually evolutionary. This is in our DNA, because there is no foodstuff anywhere in the world that is both sweet and acutely poisonous. Right. So So it was a signal to us. It was a signal to us that it was safe to eat. Even Jamaican ackee fruit, which has a substance in it called hypoglycin, which causes Jamaican vomiting sickness and can kill you. It's only in the immature fruit. As soon as the fruit falls from the tree to the ground, Jamaicans know it's okay to eat because it's now ripe and the toxin is gone. We are programmed to like sweet. And what has happened is the food industry figured it out and they hijacked our uh, taste buds for their own purposes.
2: When you think about this epidemic, and it is an epidemic. because It's it, a pandemic. I, I don't say this with any uh, smugness or satisfaction. I say this with a lot of sadness because I had always been thin. And for somebody who didn't eat meat and didn't eat... Uh, uh, I, I, th- I thought I was doing the right thing health-wise. I'm a vegetarian. I'm a pescatarian, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I'm beginning to really, really
3: blow up here, you know? Listen, we've got vegan type 2s who are massively obese. And just because you're vegan... Doesn't protect and they're getting you. that from what? What do you think they're getting it from? Sodas. Are they really Sodas right? are vegan. right? Especially South Asians, Indians. They can't carry as much subcutaneous fat. And once you basically fill up your subcutaneous, your love handle fat stores, it starts building up in your liver. And when that happens, it's all downhill after that.
2: But other people have worked toward this prior to you. You're you're not the first person to say
3: sugar is bad. Look, this has been going on since the 70s, this discussion. Right. The chief anti-sugar campaigner was a guy by the name of John Yudkin, and he was a British physiologist, nutritionist, and he wrote a book back in 1972 called Pure, White, and Deadly. Uh You read this book, it's just astounding. Everything came to pass. On the other side, we had this guy, Ansel Keys, and he had done a sabbatical at the University of Cambridge in 1952, and he saw what you know, the Brits were eating, and it was pretty horrible, and he came to the conclusion that saturated fat had to be the cause of heart disease. We didn't know at that point what happened to sugar in the liver. We didn't know that it got turned into fat. What we knew was that saturated fat correlated with LDL levels and LDL correlated with cardiovascular disease. So the thought was, let's get rid of the saturated fat and cardiovascular disease will disappear. The whole country went low fat back in 1980. Here's the problem. When you go low fat, the food tastes like cardboard.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And the food industry knew it. What were they gonna do? How were they gonna sell food? And now we had high fructose corn syrup too.
2: When does that get introduced into the food
3: market? The early 70s, oh. 73 to 75. By and Actually, they I don't American know by corporation American corporations. In, right. in 1980, the second worst hurricane in American history, Hurricane Allen. It wiped out the entire Caribbean sugar crop. And the food industry, especially the beverages industry, ran scared. They said, where are we going to get the sugar for all the soft drinks? Right. And that's when high fructose- It Heifert was an unreliable course. market. Exactly. And they started introducing it, and they started upping the dose- And by 1985, the transformation was complete. Is the process of getting table sugar from cane sugar
2: more labor-intensive and more expensive than the high-fructose corn syrup process? By a lot. The high-fructose corn syrup comes from corn. Right. And And the corn market and the corn supply in this country is far more plentiful and far more reliable than the cane sugar supply.
3: Correct. 16% of all of the corn grown in America today ends up as high-fructose corn syrup. So we have boatloads of it, and it's cheap. And because it's cheap, it started finding its way into things that never had sugar before, like hamburger buns, hamburger meat, barbecue sauce, ketchup, salad dressing. I mean, pretty much everything you can imagine in the store. Indeed, Barry Popkin at the University of North Carolina has just done a study that shows that 80% of the food items—there are 600,000 food items in America— Eighty percent of them are laced with sugar, added sugar. Do you think that they understood back then that sweetening the bun, was it just about taste? They knew that when they put it in, we bought more. Right. That they knew. When this was in there, people ate more of it. Right. Palatability equals sales. It did then, it does now. And we love sugar. And that's why the entire food supply of America is now sweeter than you can imagine. Here's the problem. There's an area of your brain called the reward center. Everybody's heard of it because, you know, drug addiction. You know that, that's Cocaine addiction. Cocaine, morphine, heroin, nicotine, they all work in the same place. And the neurotransmitter that signals pleasure is called dopamine. You know, you've probably heard of it. Yeah, of course. Dopamine. When you get a dopamine rush, you get pleasure. And sugar does it the same way as all of those drugs of abuse. The problem is when you... Get that pleasure, you downregulate the little proteins that catch the dopamine called dopamine receptors. And the more you downregulate them, the more dopamine you need to get the same effect, and that's called tolerance. And then when you take the stuff away, then there's no dopamine to interact with these few proteins left, and that's called withdrawal. Tolerance and withdrawal, that's called addiction. So we know how that works for all of these other drugs of abuse. Turns out, Sugar does the same Same thing. thing.
2: It's the same as cocaine.
3: The difference is that for cocaine, you got to go find it, whereas for sugar, we have what we call system saturation. It's everywhere, you can't escape it.
2: Coming up, more with Dr. Robert Lustig, who says that cutting out sugar is not the single most important thing you can do for your quality of life. You're going to want to sit down for this, or actually, you won't want to sit.
3: The single best thing you can do for yourself, quality of life-wise, exercise. By far and away. Nothing else comes close. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our
2: archive. More unexpected conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers like the amazing Dick Cavett.
3: Amazing. We all are saying
4: amazing all the time. now. i got five amazings and watching morning television the other day. Amazing guests. We have this, It's an amazing script. It's just amazing.
2: I was amazed by it. Your career amazes me. Yeah. Go to here's the thing.org.
5: Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. America's obesity epidemic is complicated by issues of education, poverty, and personal freedom. In July 2013, an appeals court struck down a New York City ban on the sale of supersized sugary drinks. Mayor Bloomberg was disappointed, but maybe not surprised. Two years earlier, as my guest, Dr. Robert Lustig, recalls, the mayor had tried to change things on the
3: federal level. Bloomberg petitioned the usda to take soft drinks off food stamps and the usda rebuffed it um,
2: why do you think they did
3: why do you think they I did i
2: mean other than the straight-up political influence of the soda industry
3: isn't that enough
2: how does the usda do that no one's saying to the people who are on food stamps you can't have soda i just want the government to pay for it the
3: usda's job is to sell food that means sell whoever is going to buy it right. So it's about commerce. It's about... Absolutely. And who controls the USDA? The USDA is basically the governmental arm of the food industry. Right. And the job of the USDA... You don't have
2: a lot of faith in the USDA. Uh,
3: not a whole lot, no. Okay. The job of the USDA is to protect the food supply, and that includes protecting it from people like me.
2: In terms of threats to public health... Would you equate other products and other substances that are commonly used as being equally threatening as sugar? Maybe not, not not equally, maybe not as much, but do you think there's a caffeine epidemic in this country?
3: There is a caffeine epidemic. I and, believe there is. And, and it's being stoked by all the coffee companies. But, but it's of less concern to you than sugar. Oh, way, wh- because there's no toxic downside with sugar. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension dyslipidemia, gastric bypasses one hundred and forty seven billion dollars a year down a rat hole for taking care of chronic diseases which don't need to be we wouldn't need health care reform if we had obesity reform and we can't have obesity reform until we have some sort of sugar policy
2: you you mentioned pretty regularly the food in- industry this the food industry that and You know, most Americans, I think, who are smart realize that we have more than enough food to feed three, quote-unquote, square meals a day to everybody in this country. And those that aren't getting it, it's because of the uh, distribution of food in our society. However, we have to cut a lot of corners to get there in the way we produce beef, in the way we produce livestock, in the way we produce pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, all of this stuff.
3: We need a new food model. We need a new food growing model. By 2050, we're going to need four California Central Valleys in order to feed our population. We won't even have one because of the runoff in the Sierra, the changes in soil erosion. So you know what? The obesity epidemic might even take care of itself because we'll have a famine, because we are misusing our food system. And until we fix it, We will continue to be sick. We will continue to die of things like diabetes and heart disease. Medicare will be broke by 2024 because there won't be any money to pay for it. You won't be able to see a doctor because they'll be too busy taking care of all the other fat people in the emergency room who are having their heart attacks. And there won't be enough food anyway.
2: As I'm listening to you, I'm getting really depressed and I want to go have ice cream now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you're really bumming me I want an almond joy bar really badly right
3: Look, now the bottom line is there's a lot of reason to be positive and I'll tell you why give me an example people are getting it people are starting to recognize
2: that there's an obesity epidemic in
3: not just country. obesity noncommunicable disease, disease right. epidemic okay. diabetes. diabetes heart disease yeah diabetes. exactly cancer uh, breast cancer in particular is famous for having insulin receptors and growing in response to insulin prostate uh, the yes. prostate
2: tumors have insulin receptors? Uh, yes,
3: they do. Yeah. So uh, there's v- a lot of reason to be concerned, and there's a lot of reason to keep your insulin down. Number one, it doesn't fuel any tumors. Number two, it lets your leptin work. Number three, it doesn't increase the uh, smooth muscle of your coronary arteries so that you might end up getting a heart attack. There's a whole bunch of reasons to keep your insulin down. And the thing that makes your insulin go up most, sure.
2: You know, pe- a lot of people are terrified when they sit down in a restaurant, a lot of people that are trying to stay fit and trying right. to stay healthy, they can go through periods. And I've been through this myself right. where I have like a mild panic attack when I sit down at the restaurant. Because right. I say to myself, there's an enemy lurking in everything here. Right. There's mercury in the fish and there's hormones in the chicken and I don't eat beef and
3: poultry. And there's too much sodium here and there's too much fat here. I don't eat it's dairy. true. The single best thing you can do for yourself, quality of life-wise, exercise. By far and away. Nothing else comes close. The next thing that's most important is when you're eating, make sure you have some fiber.
2: When people want to go eat fiber that you recommend they eat now, where do they go? Very
3: simple. Brown food. Brown and green. Okay? If it's brown and green, it's got fiber. Because fiber is brown. Wheat comes out of the ground. What color is it? It's brown. Brown. You send it to the mill. You make bread out of it. Now, what color is it? It's white. Where'd the brown go? Got milled off. God made carbohydrate with inherent fiber. So we have brown rice, whole grains, beans. We have nuts. They're all just great. But as soon as you remove the fiber, which is called processing, now you got a problem because now when you eat it, the sugar gets absorbed so fast that your liver gets overloaded your mitochondria basically gets sick, and now you've got insulin resistance, and now you've got all the diseases going downstream from do there. Do
2: people need to have an elevated level of consciousness and discipline about eating pasta, rice, and potatoes as well?
3: At the moment, they do. I'm hoping that the food industry will pick up on this and do the right thing. But the, to be what honest is with the you, right thing? Well, the right thing would be to actually sell real food so that we can eat real Not processed. Not processed. They can do it now. You know, years ago we couldn't because we didn't have the distribution system to be able to do it. We have it now. We could do it. We have the technological capability to serve and eat real food. But the food industry is making money hand over fist. If you could pick one or two things that you would change in public policy? If it
2: was like getting the soda machines out of schools, it would be like no uh, food stamps for soda. What would be a change in public policy you'd make? One thing. What is it?
3: The FDA currently has fructose, the sweet part of sugar, on what's called the grass list, GRAS, generally regarded as safe. Also has trans fats on it at the moment as well. It needs to be Re-evaluated, it needs to be revised. The last time this was looked at was 1986, and this was before the high fructose corn syrup glut. This was before the excess so sugar. So a quarter of
2: a century ago.
3: Exactly, and they have no plans on doing so. If I could do one thing in this entire thing, it would be that.
2: What would be one more?
3: Um, I would think very strongly about limiting access of sugar beverages to infants and children. Like, zero. There's no reason for it. There's not one biochemical reaction in your body, not one, that requires dietary fructose. Not one that requires sugar. Dietary fructose is completely irrelevant to life. People say, oh, you need sugar to live. Garbage. Dr. Robert Lustig's book
2: about the dangers of sugar is called Fat Chance, beating the odds against sugar, processed food, obesity, and disease. Knowing what you know, what are things you don't eat? (laughs) What's your diet become since you've been doing
3: this work? I carry a few extra pounds and I'm not happy about it. I don't eat sugar. You don't? No, I have dessert twice a year. When I'm in New York, I have a piece of Junior's cheesecake and when I'm in New Orleans I have bread pudding with right. whiskey sauce yeah. those are my two uh well no one can do that D- dessert twice
2: a year twice wow. a year you're doing well
3: okay. other than that no I, I really don't well, then what are you eating that you think you shouldn't be eating well I have a half a bagel in the morning with cheese that's sort of my standard breakfast and my wife gets on me for that right for lunch unfortunately because i'm running between you know patients it often ends up being something very processed and it's a real right. problem yeah. you know for dinner though it's, it's a very standard dinner and i don't snack between meals and i still can't lose it so i understand i'm there i'm part you of it can't see your leptin probably not <laughs>
2: <laughs> dessert is a luxury many of us take for granted But many people in America go decades without the privilege of selecting what to eat or, for that matter, what to wear, when to shower, or any other meaningful life decision. In 1988, I went to Rahway Prison in New Jersey, now called East Jersey State Prison, to do research for a film. Over the course of two weeks, I interviewed several inmates. I met armed robbers, rapists, drug dealers, and murderers. And I'll never forget my experiences there. As my next guest, Martin Horn, will tell you, prisons are memorable. The first prison he set foot in was Sing Sing
4: in upstate New York. It's the Keynesian, right? I mean, it's, uh, it was built in 1819 or thereabouts. Uh, the prisoners hewed the stone off the palisades. The walls of the original uh, cell blocks still stand. For over
2: 40 years, Martin Horn's career has focused on prisons and the men and women who live there. He's held every imaginable job in corrections from debating the fairness of states' sentencing guidelines to fixing leaky water pipes in aging facilities. In 2002, Mayor Bloomberg appointed Horn commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation. A year later, in an unprecedented move, Bloomberg gave Horn an additional job commissioner of corrections. Horn held both positions until he left in 2009. Leaving public office has allowed Martin Horn to be more vocal about his opinions on prisons, sentencing, and how to deal with our nation's drug
4: problem. I would legalize drugs across the board. You would re- legalize uh, which after, drugs? After f- all of them. You would legalize all drugs. Yes, yes.
2: That's a pretty. Yeah. I, well, <laughs> that I'm stunned. I well, I wouldn't <laughs> I'm say speechless. that.
4: I wouldn't say that while I worked for a governor or a mayor. Right. who was an elected official. Now, why wouldn't you say that then, as opposed to now? Because I had
2: a mortgage to pay. Martin Horne's career in corrections started right out of college in 1969.
4: My first job was as a New York State parole officer. And how did you, what was it that led you down that path? (laughs) Um, I graduated college. I was 21 years old. I needed a job. And um, I took a civil service test. New York State at that time had a test called the Professional Careers Test. And it was sort of a generalist examination. And if you passed it, it qualified you for a variety of positions. And Where so did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn. What part? Uh, in uh, Flatbush. My father's from Fort Greene. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well...
2: So you took the – did you ever want to be a police officer? Was that no, your first I, – No,
4: I wanted a job. So, so your took,
2: family in civil service no, and police no, and law not, enforcement?
4: No, not at all. I, at, when I took the job, I didn't know there was such a thing as a parole officer. I had never thought of it. The first thing they did was they assigned me to a, a unit they had then, which they no longer have, called the employment unit. We would get uh, paperwork on uh, individuals who were coming home from New York State prisons who needed jobs. And we literally pounded the pavement in New York City, walked all over. We each had sort of a a neighborhood. I had Long Island City. And each day I got five or ten guys' names and and their backgrounds on little uh, five-by-eight cards, and I'd have to go out and find them jobs. What was people's attitudes toward employing those people back then? Well, well, they actually, we had a very sophisticated system. We knew employers who had previously hired employees. So they were disposed. And they were disposed. And many of them said, look, I hired a guy from Clinton, and he was the best guy I had. They trusted you, and they relied
2: on you to set him up with decent guys. Right. That
4: was our job. So we did that for about six weeks. Then they actually sent me to Sing Sing for, I think, two months where I had to meet with inmates who were becoming eligible for release on parole and help them to prepare for their appearance before the board of parole.
2: So you were interacting during this time with...
4: Yes, but I wasn't responsible for supervising. I was, I was re- interacting with families. I was learning how to do investigations. So for the
2: guy that took this test in 1969 who didn't have an eye toward this kind of work, when you were interacting with these people, what did you take from it?
4: It was fascinating. Where else do you see the varieties of human behavior? I had grown up in a uh, middle-class... Home in Brooklyn, uh, on the edge of Brownsville. Uh, I was familiar with Brownsville in East New York. Uh, there were adjacent neighborhoods. Right. Tough uh, area then. W- yes, not as tough as now. Right. Not as desperate as now. But Oceanville, Brownsville, o- Ocean Hill—I yeah. was, you know, there, working. That was known as a tough area yeah, back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the desperation of the families, and more importantly to me, the dignity of the families that were making it. I used to come home and say, what's remarkable is not how much crime there is, but how little crime there is. When you see how people are living, right? right? And so to this day, when people, people talk do about do the relationship between, between poverty and crime, I say, listen, there are more people who grow up and live in poverty who don't commit crime and than And live do. with it, yeah. yeah. And, you know, before I turned around, it just turned into a career, and I enjoyed it, and I did well at how it. Did
2: your attitude, and this is a very broad question, but your overall attitude toward paroled inmates evolve over the years where you were more at eye level with them and hands-on with them, and that it changed as you became more of an administrator and then you became head of the department.
4: I, I really think that my attitude towards imprisoned and formerly imprisoned people was formed during those early years as a parole officer. How would you describe that? It was one of recognizing that every one of them was just a normal, ordinary guy, they were all guys back then, who had made bad judgments. I met very few, really very few, who were downright evil and mean. They were poor schlubs. I said to one guy at one time, this was a guy, this is when you could smoke on the the subway, he had a cigarette lighter that was in the shape of a Derringer. (laughs) He took it out, and a cop was looking at him, and he held his arm out and aimed it at the cop, and he got arrested. And I said to him, if stupidity was a crime, right. you would get the death penalty. Right. A lot of them were addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And I met their families, and they were just folk. And, you know, there but for the grace of God could go any one of us. But you,
2: I agree with you. I often think to myself, my God, how many moments in my life could something have gone wrong where I could be? In a docket, and I could be in a courtroom, and I could be facing
4: prison and, time. And probably had the benefit of far better circumstances than most of these guys did. Sure. Right? Sure. They didn't, you know, they had difficulty fighting the job. And then when
2: you see people who do have the benefit of those circumstances and still right. commit crimes, right. the made-offs I the judge world them so more possible. harshly. Yeah, yeah. I, I always think to myself, we've got it wrong. We need to right. be having longer exactly. sentences for white-collar crime yeah. than we do for, yeah. uh, for drug but crime. But
4: I've always felt, and I said this even in my last years as the head of a large corrections agency, this is what I said to my staff. I said, this is our standard of care. It is that every person in our custody is to be treated as we would want our own child treated if they were in that circumstance. You felt that way. I
2: absolutely felt that way. Because for most people, you know, you think about Prison and imprisonment in our society—you know—prison is divided into a dual function. There's to protect the public mm-hmm. and to uh, take away these predatory people and put them yeah. away, and then the rehabilitative aspect yeah. of it. And most people See, I don't I think, accept that dichotomy. I, t- tell me.
4: Well, I don't buy rehabilitation. No, by that, what you mean? I don't think that prisons do a very good job of it. I think it is a valid social purpose to punish people. To reinforce our social norms. That's why we punish people. It is a valid social purpose to punish people, to extract vengeance in the name of society on behalf of aggrieved victims. It's a valid social purpose to incapacitate people who endanger us. See, that's the more important to me. And the prison system does those three things pretty well. There was a sociologist by the name of Hans Mottick who once said you can't train an aviator in a submarine. You can't train a man to live in the community in prison. And if a person needs rehabilitation and they're not dangerous, the best place to rehabilitate, whatever the hell that means, is in the community where they're going to have to live. Now, let me ask you that. Someone said something
2: to me on this visit to Rahway, and this was probably the most significant thing someone said to me. I mean, I said the problem with this system is the sentencing relative to the classification of the crime relative to the record of the individual inmate, because they said some guys come in here and the following thing takes place. They come in here and they're sorry. And then three months go by and they're really, really sorry. And six months go by and they're really, really, really sorry and they're ready to get out and they're sorry. And then you keep them in there another couple of months and they're not sorry anymore. Now they're angry. They flip. And now
4: they're angry. And now they've switched sides and I'm wondering what your opinion is about My opinion is New York, well, the United States generally incarcerates people longer than any other country. You part, think we have
2: overly lengthy prison sentences? Absolutely. Right.
4: Absolutely. I, I mean, if you for wanna, victimless crimes. For victimless crimes and even for crimes with victims. Ever since um, Richard Nixon and the war on crime, which was really just a way to capture the Southern vote because he really meant a war on black people. Ever since Willie Horton, which was just an extension of that same thing. Mm-hmm. No politician has been willing to reduce criminal sentences. And I think this has been the politics and the media have driven it in this country to a terrible extent. So you were a parole officer for how many years? I was a parole officer for about seven years. And then what happened? Uh, Then actually, well, I got a graduate degree and I uh, moved to upstate New York to teach in the State University of New York. I got a teaching appointment as an assistant professor.
2: But that didn't last long. Martin Horn left to become director of work release programs for New York State. This was 1977, and New York was investing in halfway houses. The idea is simple, reduce an inmate's time and maximum security to get that person a job. This saves a lot of money and reduces recidivism,
4: but is obviously no easy task. Look, this business of corrections and and releasing people from prison is essentially nothing more than a risk management exercise, right? We can never eliminate risk. The only way to have no risk is to never let anybody out of their cell. If you have 6,000 guys in halfway houses, some of them are going to screw up. The story about New York that that we should feel good about is that where in 1995, 96, New York State had 70,000 people in prison. And mind you, when I started in 1969, there were 10,000 people in prison. So, in 1995, there were 70,000. Today, it's down to 50,000 as a Where result. What do you attribute that to? The reform of the Rockefeller drug laws. Mm-hmm. So, it's, there's no question in my mind that the number of people that are in prison is a function of policy decisions made by elected officials. Who do you think was ultimately responsible for bringing down those laws? Because a lot of people thought that that was just insanity. Well, look, I mean, I think that there was an advocacy organization, Drop the Rock in New York. I think that then-Governor Patterson, deserves credit. I'm not sure any other governor would have accepted that. And then also, I think you cannot ignore the cost issue. The cost of imprisonment in New York state today even is still $2 billion a year. In um, just about every state in the country over the last 20 years, the cost of imprisonment has been the fastest growing item in state budgets. In California, which for years uh, uh, was so proud of its public university system, reached the point where it was spending more on its state prisons, which now hold 160,000 people, than it was on its state universities. So I think that it was a perfect storm. All the factors came together. The fiscal conservatives were driven by the price issues. And and my concern is that it's driven by cost and that it does not reflect a genuine rethinking of our approach to crime and imprisonment. When I was a parole officer, we had an expression, trail him, nail him, and jail him. And the idea was that it was up to the parolee to do all the work, and if he screwed up, we would catch him and lock him up. And we had this belief that if we locked him up before he committed a more serious crime, we were performing a public service.
2: Martin Horn's years of hands-on experience changed his opinions. He grew to believe that the prison system wasn't doing enough for ex-inmates. For Horn, there are three elements to successful re-entry from prison. Ex-offenders need help finding a job, a place to live, and staying sober. Coming up, Horn on his
4: decision to leave public service. To this day, I'm not entirely sure what happened. I will tell you this, This Is something you think can happen anywhere? Absolutely. And it is, I will say, what caused me to decide to retire because I felt that I could not trust my workforce any longer.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
5: Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
0: more info now.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In October, 2008, an 18-year-old boy was killed at Rikers Island, New York City's largest jail, by fellow inmates. The Village Voice had been reporting for the past year about violence among prisoners at Rikers. Guards were said to be looking the other way. In 2012, The Voice obtained and published graphic pictures of knife wounds and other injuries from inside the jail walls. The largest jail system in the country had a fight club that was condoned and even promoted by jail officials. The program, as it was
4: called, delivered the most challenging moments of Martin Horne's career. The story uh, is that a young man by the name of Christopher Robinson was put into a particular housing unit uh, in the adolescent housing unit. And he had been transferred there because in the unit that he had been in previously, he had actually been extorting from a weaker inmate, and he was caught. So his classification was increased, and he was put into this higher classification unit. So, you know, there's sort of a pecking order. So now he gets there, and these guys who had been there for a while, who were this clique, they step up to him, and they said, we're going to extort from you. And he says to them, I'm the extorter here. You don't extort from (laughs) me. So they tuned him up. They beat him up. Come to find out that they had been extorting from other inmates and that this had been going on for some time with the prior knowledge and arguably the connivance of the officers. And basically the officers had made a devil's bargain with the inmates, "Look, you don't beat us up, you don't attack us, and we'll let you run, your run the show." show. Exactly. Right. Which, by the way, you know, most officers, perhaps all officers, are scared out of their minds. The job that we ask corrections officers to do are terrifying. We ask them to supervise 50 often angry, sometimes mentally ill, young men. In during open, the worst
2: period of their lives. During the
4: worst period of their lives cr- who are craving some addictive substance in an open dormitory. And they're in that dormitory by themselves. So how does this one individual assert himself he does not carry a weapon he does not carry a baton there may be another officer in a control room some 10 20 feet away who can sound the alarm and ask for help but by the time help arrives he can be beaten to a bloody pulp so it's two in the morning you're making your rounds walking around this dormitory of 50 21 22 year old guys In the back corner you stumble across two of them smoking weed. You have a decision to make. You can turn your back and walk the other way. You can try and bust them (laughs) and run the risk that their friends will pounce on you and pummel you. So Which happens. Which certainly happens. How frequently? more frequently than we'd like it to. And that's right. another reason that I left because I feel the prisons are understaffed. I think it's, it's wrong to ask one man. And by the way, today, more than 50% of the correction officers in the city of New York are women. So, so when you
2: say that the two guys smoke weed... The corrections officer comes, he sees he got a decision to make, and someone's going to pummel you. Do you have a system in place where you know who's more disposed toward violent behavior inside the facility when they come in, and why can't you separate them before in an anticipatory way?
4: Well, we have what a system we refer to as classification, and you basically separate the most serious inmates and put them in maximum security. But at the end of the day, somebody has to supervise those maximum security inmates. Um, what reforms do you think could be made in supervising maximum security inmates? Does well, be less... generally, I, I don't like to open dormitories. I think right. every inmate should have his own cell. Cells do not have to be oppressive. They do not have to be depressing. They can be bright and airy. They don't have to be oppressive. And they have cellmates where so everybody has their own room. Everybody should have their own room. I don't you, like not do. selling I don't, and You I, don't? Why? No. Well... I think that... You don't
2: think that's cruel and unusual? People have making contact? I, I think...
4: Well, I, I don't like to use those terms, cruel and unusual, and in fact, the Supreme Court has said that there is no one man one cell rule living in the Constitution. But I think that we all have privacy needs. To your knowledge, and I would trust your opinion, do the inmates, do they want their own cell? They, do they prefer it? Some like company. Some like company for the wrong reasons. But most people, I think, want their privacy. This is your safety zone. Right. Nobody can get you if you want to come out. You know, different people go to prisons, and and they're terrified to be out in the prison yard with all these other inmates.
2: Is there a constant pulsing sense of fear for people who are in the prison yard?
4: Not in a well-run prison. Look, it's the job of the officers to keep the inmates safe. And if we don't keep the inmates safe, they'll find ways to keep themselves safe. How will they do that? They'll do that by joining gangs, and they'll do that by creating- How prevalent is is that in New York State now? A lot of gangs- I can't comment on New York State prisons. I know that it's, new York city? it's certainly a problem in New York City.
2: And in the city, and they do these gangs. I guess like if I got into prison tomorrow, is it just expected I'm going to join a gang for my own protection? Well,
4: see, this gets to the program. You're the new guy. You come into a, this open dormitory of 50 inmates, and there's a group of uh, maybe 10 or 15 of them. Perhaps they know themselves from the street. Perhaps they self-identify as Bloods or Crips or Latin Kings or... Aryan Nation. Whatever. Not too many of those in New York. But if you're in California, sure. And they step to you and they say, here's the deal. Are you with us? And if, if you're stupid enough to walk into a, a, a dormitory where there are 20 inmates who call themselves bloods and you say, hell, I'm a crip. Well, yeah. they're going to do the same thing they do to you on the street. Get off our turf. Prison and jail is this artificial scarcity that we create, right? So there's, by and large, little food. There's no drugs. Phones. There's no girls. There's no sex. You know, there's no money. And so there's phones. a black market for all there's that. There's a black market. And so, as with any place else, a group of inmates emerges, and they say, we control it. The simplest thing, and this is what was happening, certainly in the adolescent jail where that program occurred, there were never enough chairs for all the inmates. And a group of inmates would say, on Saturday mornings, when this program is on or when this sporting event is on, there's one TV set it's for the black guys, and you Spanish guys, you stay in your cells because that's our time. Right now, an officer has a choice to make. First of all, he should see it going on, and if he sees it going he on, he should take away that he should take that away. Were there any
2: prosecutions of any of the
4: officers? Oh, yeah, in the, the of officers, uh, two officers actually were convicted of gang assault. Right. And uh, five or seven of the inmates ultimately were convicted. I don't know what the charge was, but it might have been manslaughter. I mean, I don't think they intended to kill Christopher Robinson. The troubling thing was that there had been stories for some time, uh, and this is what The Voice documented, that this had been going on. There were breadcrumbs, and that if we had done a better job of following those breadcrumbs, we perhaps would have seen it earlier and and prevented it. Do people— But, you know, I'd like to get back to another point you make. You know, you make the point about— Uh, how we deal with white-collar criminals or with everybody uses the Madoff example. You know Martha Stewart? Uh You've met her? Many times, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure she's a lovely person. So we know that uh, some years ago she um, lied to a federal officer investigating supposed uh, insider stock manipulation. She was not convicted of the stock manipulation. She was convicted of lying to a federal officer. And she got, what, four months in a federal prison in Alderson. So, today, but for her current troubles with Macy's and Penny's, she's better off than she was when she went to prison. What did society gain by that? Let me suggest to you what if instead we had erected a 10 um, foot high platform in Times Square and we had climate controlled it? We enclosed it in plexiglass, we heated it, we air conditioned it, and we put a, a stool. You know, like a bar stool in it, and it's we like a stocks. Well, I wouldn't put her in stocks, but I would I'm say though, similar every day. You want to be here at nine o'clock in the morning, and you were to remain here until five in the afternoon. You know, we'll protect you from the elements, and you'll sit here with a sign around your neck that says, "I'm a liar." Mm-hmm. You can bathe, but you can't get all dressed up. You can't wear jewelry. You can't wear makeup. You know you can attend to all your personal needs, that sort of thing. We're not looking to harm you, but you can't do all that stuff. And after you've sat in Times Square for some period of time where the world could see that you are a liar, you are to perform community service for a year where you're to go out to uh, East New York and teach young women. About nutrition, about dressing for success, about all of the things that you do so well. And in addition, you have to uh, pay back, treble or quadruple what you made on this financial fraud. And that's it. But we're not going to imprison you. Would we have had as great a deterrent effect? Would we have punished her? Would we have convinced her not to try to do it again? Would we have deterred others? I would argue yes. And yet we don't do those things. We don't use shame in our society. Well,
2: But uh, but I I agree with you in terms of what you're suggesting. However, we do have that now. We have the Internet. As my friend once said, the Internet represents the death of forgetting. Martha Stewart is forever going to be referred to as,
4: you know, formerly incarcerated,
2: blah, blah, blah. That's going to stay with her for the rest of her life. But
4: was she punished? My point is simply this: as a society, our primary response to crime is prison. Right. It's the only tool. The only in thing our people tool understand. Belt. You know the uh, aphorism that if the only tool on your belt is a hammer, everything looks like a everything nail. Everything nail, yeah, of course. Well, that's that's true with respect to our approach to imprisonment.
2: If you had um, three things that you were going to change about the uh, federal state city, what would you change about the way we deal with convicted
4: felons? Today? Well, so that's, that, that excludes the city. Let's talk about federal and right, state. Federal and state. First thing I'd do is I'd legalize drugs. Right.
2: Yeah, when you say that, though, I mean, obviously, there are people who, who inside that argument talk about cocaine and heroin. You don't care. You'd legalize everything. I would legalize drugs. We couldn't possibly do worse than we're doing now. Right. But what would you do to take it even further? I mean, you've been involved with the system for a long, long time. You'd have the government dispensing cocaine and heroin? I would sell it in the liquor stores. Right. And I would tax the hell out of it. Right. You just license it and sell it.
4: Damn, I mean, I agree with you as yes, far as marijuana I, is Then concerned. I would take all the money we're spending and all the money we're going to make, and I would reinvest it in prevention. You know, I grew up never using a seatbelt. And to this day, I'll drive around without a seatbelt. My kids, were now You can end 30, up in prison for that, you know. Uh, I suppose. My, my son, when he was two years old, if I started to back the car out before he was buckled in, Would have a tantrum. Right. Right? Fewer kids are smoking today. We can prevent. We can provide treatment and there will be money. And there will be money to spare. So I would legalize drugs. I would reduce the um, length of time that people who do commit crimes. For nonviolent crimes. Well, for all crimes, but for those people who scare us the most. John Muhammad. Remember the Washington sniper? Yes. Right? You have to incapacitate him forever. Right? right? Jeffrey Dahmer. Right? right. You had right. to incapacitate. The, the, uh, the mentally ill. The homicidal mentally ill. The mentally ill. That's a whole different story. Right. That's That's item four. The great shame of our society today is that 20% of the people in prison have a mental illness. More people receive acute mental health care in the jails in this country than they do in the mental hospitals. Mentally ill people don't belong in jail, and it is a scandal in our and society. You're not allowed to give mental violent- illness is not a crime. Well, you're
2: not allowed to give violent inmates in any kind of a system drugs. You're not allowed to. Well,
4: if if, if they're being treated for mental illness, people not, not mental mentally just,
2: just for being vi- you're not saying they're meant- well, oh, you're yeah, not You are not you even can't say- drug
4: them to quiet them down. You, 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 you no, can't no, no, no without a court order. I mean, you can if there's a court order. What's number three? Um, number three is I would change the way we release people from prison. I would actually do away with the parole boards and discretionary parole. I would uh, make every sense a, a determinate sense. I would say you're going to be under the control of the state for a period of time. Let's just say for argument's sake, five years. For the first three of those years, you're going to go to prison and we'll leave it up to the corrections people to decide maximum, medium, minimum. But at the end of three years, you're coming back to the community. And when you come back to the community, you're going to live in a halfway house. And while you're in the halfway house, we are going to help you connect with a relapse prevention program to prevent your relapse to drug abuse. And we're going to help you to get involved in an AA program. And we're going to help you find a job. And you're not going to have to pay us any money. You're going to save the money you earn on your job. And we're going to help you find a place to live. And when you've saved enough money to pay a month's rent and a month's deposit and maybe another month, you can go home and live on your own. And we're done with you. So I would, I would have fixed sentences, and that way w- what happens now is uh, Johnny Jones goes to prison for uh, 5 to 15 years. Well, is it 5 or is it 15? <laughs> and if the parole board paroles him at 5, the victim says, my God, I thought he was going away for 15 years. Or he goes in front of the parole board, and they say, Johnny, we're going to hold you for 5 more years. He says, well, I pleaded guilty, and my lawyer told me that if I did everything right and kept my nose clean, I'd be out in 5. And the parole board says, well, we weren't in the room when that deal got made. The whole system currently is deceptive, undermines respect for the rule of law, and it, it doesn't allow us to release individuals from prison in a planful way. So I would, those are the three things I would change. Are you glad you're done? Are you glad you're w- walking away from that reality? It was, it, was, it, was, it was a fascinating career. I am absolutely glad I'm done. You are. Um, Was it
2: spiritually deadening in other ways as well? I mean, because I I can't think of anything more horrific than when I was in prison. On some level,
4: there is no place else a grown man could have as much fun. When I was the warden of Hudson Prison, I used to say to people that it was a cross between being the headmaster of a somewhat down-on-its-heels boys' school and the King of England, because you were in charge. And you had to deal with everything from the pipes in this 100-year-old facility breaking, to making sure that uh, there was adequate food and that the food was well prepared, to making sure that there were no contagious diseases, that tuberculosis didn't spread, that measles didn't spread, that people got psychiatric care. You had to deal with labor relations. You had to deal with ethical issues. You had to deal with legal issues. You were the Lord High Governor. And it was fascinating. And in that respect, I, I couldn't have had a better career.
2: Today, Martin Horn is a distinguished lecturer in corrections at John Jay College and serves as the executive director of the Permanent Sentencing Commission, which works to clarify, simplify, and create New York State's sentencing guidelines. Here's the thing you can hear more in depth conversations in our archive, from artists to policymakers to performers like David Letterman on his early days in television. We got a bunch
3: of complaints. He's either not wearing underpants or he needs to wear underpants. That's how I distinguish myself.
2: Do you want to clear that up now? Were you wearing underpants? Oh, or of did course you? I was wearing, wearing underpants. underpants. It was Indianapolis. Yeah. I, we, we're not yeah. taught Good to God. go out without our underpants. We're American. Go to Here's the Thing.org. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Boteen and Kathy Russo with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Wendy Dore, Ed Herbstman. Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, Trey Kaye, Sharon Mashihe, and Lou Okowski. Thanks to Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
0: phone now.
5: Right Rug Flooring.